Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. So we've got a bunch of cases this week. Nine. Multiple cases from multiple circuits. And they fall pretty much into two broad categories. I'm going to start off with the asylum type cases, and then I'm going to turn to the crimmigration ones. Join me, if you will, as I ping-pong around the circuits for your listening pleasure. First is Rodriguez Tornes v. Garland published by the Ninth Circuit on April 5th, 2021. Starting off with a big one on family-based asylum and nexus. Ms. Rodriguez-Tornez is from Mexico and has suffered a lifetime of abuse for not being sufficiently subservient to men. As a child, her mother used to beat her in part to prepare her for future beatings from her future husband and instilled in her the idea that she must obey her husband in every way. Nevertheless, Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes grew up to be a teacher and to support ideas of gender equality. Her eventual husband, however, disagreed and beat her savagely for many years. He was jealous of her, upset that she worked for herself, and furious that she did not fulfill all the household duties he believed that a woman should. He left her when she was pregnant, but her family would not let her divorce due to her religion and gender stereotypes. Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes fled to the United States in 1993. Years later, her husband in Mexico tried to locate her on social media and made known that he had not changed his views on gender relations or violence. In the United States, Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes remarried a man from Guatemala and unfortunately had a similar horrendous experience with him too. Rape, stabbings, burnings, it's really a horrible decision. Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes had three U.S. citizen children from that marriage and eventually escaped him, too. For reasons unexplained, her second husband got deported to Guatemala in 2017 and Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes got deported to Mexico. The second husband tried to find her in Mexico, even though he's from Guatemala, and she fled Mexico again for the United States. 
She believes that, even though he's Guatemalan, the second husband, as well as the first husband, now live in Mexico. The government caught Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes again, but instead of reinstating what appears to be a 2017 final order of removal, they initiated removal proceedings again from the beginning, thereby allowing Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes to apply for asylum. An immigration judge granted relief and protection under the Torture Convention, finding Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes' feminist political opinion and particular social group defined as Mexican females were at least one central reason for the horrible things that her Mexican husband did to her in the past, and at least one central reason for the future persecution she feared in Mexico from both her Mexican husband and her Guatemalan second husband living in Mexico. The Ninth Circuit is very impressed with the depth and thoughtfulness of the IJ's written decision. The BIA affirmed the immigration judge's grant of protection under the Torture Convention, but reversed on asylum and withholding, relying almost exclusively on Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision in matter of AB. Pretty much all based on a finding that Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes had not established that she was harmed, or feared harm, on account of a protected ground. The Ninth Circuit reversed with too many good quotes to quote. First, it noted the Nexus framework for many pages, so review this case for great quotes on Nexus, Ninth Circuit practitioners. It started off by noting that withholding has a lower Nexus standard than does asylum, a topic often discussed on the podcast. Next, among other things, it stated that for asylum, the protected ground must be a but-for cause of the persecution and must play more than a minor role. But this is not too difficult to satisfy. Quote, that an unprotected ground such as a personal dispute also constitutes a central reason for persecution does not bar asylum, end quote. The Ninth Circuit then held that this relatively favorable nexus standard and prior Ninth Circuit case law cited in the decision is, quote, substantively indistinguishable, end quote, from the one used by Acting Attorney General Rosen in matter of A.B. II, noted. So getting to the substance, turning first to political opinion, the Ninth Circuit held again that there is, quote, little doubt, end quote, that feminism qualifies, and that, quote, a short temporal gap between a petitioner's actual or imputed assertion of a political opinion and her mistreatment provides indirect evidence of a nexus, end quote. Here, Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes established her feminist political opinion through her, quote, testimony, work habits, and insistence on autonomy, end quote. Under Ninth Circuit precedent, she need not actually become a political activist in any way, shape, or form. And on Nexus, her testimony was in fact quite clear that her partners were stabbing, burning, and raping her because of her political opinion. Indeed, most of it happened right after she'd assert her independence and equality. Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes' expert on domestic abuse corroborated the reason for all of this and the fact that, quote, some incidents of abuse may also have reflected a dysfunctional relationship is besides the point, end quote. Then, after making the past persecution finding, the Ninth Circuit did not remand for further analysis on well-founded fear, whether the Mexican government was unable or unwilling to control the husbands, or whether Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes could relocate in Mexico, as the law usually requires. The Ninth Circuit didn't deem it necessary to remand because, quote, when the agency grants cat protection, as happened here, it necessarily has decided that there is a well-founded fear of future persecution, end quote. And the agency, quote, has decided that the government was unable or unwilling to control petitioners' persecutors, end quote. 
so the Ninth Circuit flat-out held that Ms. Rodriguez-Tornes qualified for asylum. Having so found, the Ninth Circuit didn't reach the issue of whether the group Mexican Females is cognizable. But remember, everyone, the IJ definitely did, and it appears that the BIA did as well. Congratulations to Elaine J. Goldenberg and an army of lawyers and amici counsel on the win. Two more things. Heads up, yet another case to cite for for the proposition that harm suffered in the United States can establish past persecution, and at a minimum, can be used to establish a well-founded fear under the right circumstances. Finally, in concurrence, Judge Paez wrote to make clear how important he believed the expert's testimony in this case was, and how mistaken the BIA was to reject it. Quote, The record evidence of Professor Nancy Lemon's rigorous expert analysis undermines the BIA's unsubstantiated premise that unless otherwise shown, domestic violence is a purely private matter. End quote. And that is Rodriguez Tornes v. Garland. Next up, Matter of ASM, published by the BIA. This case is about reinstatement and withholding of removal. Mr. ASM was physically removed to Mexico following removal proceedings in 1998. He re-entered unlawfully, and former INS reinstated the removal order, physically removing him to Mexico again in 2002. He re-entered the U.S. unlawfully again in 2004 and was discovered and detained in 2012. This time, he said that actually, he was a citizen of Honduras, not Mexico, and that he had a fear of returning to that country. DHS found that fear of return to Honduras credible and reasonable, and therefore, after reinstating the final order of removal under INA Section 241A5, placed Mr. ASM in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge to adjudicate his fear of removal to Honduras. And that's because if DHS reinstates a final order of removal, a non-citizen is barred from seeking anything before an immigration judge except withholding of removal under the INA and cat protection. In withholding-only proceedings, DHS indicated that it intended to remove Mr. ASM to Honduras rather than Mexico. But the IJ refused to adjudicate Mr. ASM's withholding of removal application from Honduras because Mr. ASM had been ordered removed to Mexico in 1998, and it was that final order that DHS had reinstated, thereby resulting in withholding-only proceedings. This, despite everyone agreeing that Mr. ASM is actually from Honduras. Does that make the 1998 removal order to Mexico invalid and illegal? Makes one's head spin. So the IJ refused to adjudicate the withholding of removal application from Honduras, and denied withholding from Mexico. And the IJ is not crazy either. After all, in order to withhold removal, a non-citizen must actually be ordered removed to a country first, and Mr. ASM has never been ordered removed to Honduras. And there's no real opportunity for an IJ to order him removed to Honduras here, because these aren't removal proceedings. These are withholding-only proceedings following the reinstatement of a removal order to Mexico. But on appeal, the BIA remanded back to the IJ. 
It relied on the statutory framework for determining whether DHS may actually remove a non-citizen at INA Section 241b2a through subsection e. Under that framework, DHS has the discretion to designate Honduras, or any country really, as the country of removal. And once DHS so designates, that same statutory framework makes Mr. ASM eligible to seek withholding of removal from that country. Put another way, the statute and regulations require that if DHS states or indicates during the reinstatement process that it, quote, may remove the alien, end quote, to a country, no matter that country, the non-citizen has a right to seek withholding from that country. So the BIA remanded to give Mr. ASM a shot to prove his case. A lot to get through this episode, but I've got one more thing to say. The board also noted that under the regulations, neither the immigration judge nor the board has discretion to second-guess DHS's designation of a country of removal. So I guess the only option then, should DHS identify a completely erroneous country of removal, would be a habeas action in federal court. Should such unique facts arise, here's your case to support federal district court jurisdiction. And that is matter of ASM. Next is Sanchez Vasquez v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on April 7, 2021. This case is largely about anti-gang-based asylum claims. Mr. Sanchez Vasquez is from El Salvador, and in detained removal proceedings, pro se representing himself, he applied for asylum and related relief. He claimed to fear MS-13 based on death threats he had received in El Salvador should he refuse to join. He also claimed that the gang threatened him when, through his Christian youth group, he distributed anti-gang pamphlets. The IJ denied the asylum claim as time-barred. Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez didn't file within one year, and then denied withholding and protection under the Convention Against Torture. Important for this decision, the IJ and then the BIA held that any harm Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez suffered or feared was not on account of a protected ground, as required to obtain withholding of removal under the INA. On appeal to the BIA, Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez, now through counsel, also asked either that the BIA take administrative notice of certain documents, or to remand so the IJ could consider further evidence that Christians such as Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez were persecuted in El Salvador, and that their Christian religion was a cause of the persecution. But the First Circuit affirmed the board on Nexus, holding that the record sufficiently showed that Mr. Sanchez Vasquez's, quote, unwillingness to join the gang, not his Christian faith or his faith-related activities, was the central reason for the claimed harm, end quote. It didn't matter to the court that Mr. Sanchez Vasquez may have refused to join the gang because of his intense Christian faith, because that argument, quote, incorrectly focuses on the petitioner's reason for refusing to join MS-13, rather than the motivation behind the harm allegedly inflicted by the gang members, end quote. Plus, the record shows that devout Christians continue to live unharmed in El Salvador. The First Circuit then concluded that the BIA did not err in refusing to take administrative notice of country condition reports on the treatment of evangelical Christians in El Salvador, or for refusing to remand for further consideration. 
Administrative notice was not required because, for one reason, the evidence was not undisputable, quote, commonly known facts, end quote. And the BIA has wide discretion on what to take administrative notice of. And remand wasn't appropriate because the documents were available at the time of the IJ's hearing. True, the First Circuit deemed this a, quote, close call, end quote. After all, Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez was detained, didn't speak English, and represented himself. But on the other hand, the IJ gave him a lot of continuances and tried to guide him on his path to bringing his claim. And after all, the law does not provide non-citizens with free attorneys in immigration proceedings, unlike in criminal proceedings. An unfortunate case for Mr. Sanchez-Vasquez, based largely on standards of review and some of the harsh realities of our immigration court system. And that is Sanchez-Vasquez v. Garland. Moving right along, we have Cabrera Martinez v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on April 7, 2021. This case is about the persecution of Cuban journalists. Mr. Martinez is a journalist from Cuba who claimed that over a two-year period, Cuban government officials targeted him after they learned of his writing for Cavavencia, a magazine critical of Cuban tax policies. Local officials warned him that if he kept it up, he could, quote, spend a lot of time in prison and be tortured, end quote. Shortly thereafter, two men in plain clothes stopped and beat Mr. Martinez, making him lose consciousness. Locals knew that those men were communist security agents. After that, Mr. Martinez was detained and interrogated by Cuban intelligence officers at his home, and they told him that they could make him disappear. He was then fired from his primary employment as a waiter, following pressure by communists upon his boss. He moved towns, but was detained for three days, and told that he needed to leave town because he was known to have political problems. He fled Cuba for Guyana, but before he could get on the plane, he was searched and had his laptop and cell phone taken by government agents. He eventually made his way to the southern border of the U.S. and claimed asylum. An immigration judge held that Mr. Martinez's experience equated more to harassment than to persecution and denied asylum, additionally finding that Mr. Martinez lacked a well-founded fear of future persecution because the Cuban regime appears to only targeted journalists from the opposition political parties, and Mr. Martinez was not one of those. The BIA affirmed. The 11th Circuit disagreed. Kind of. Addressing past persecution first, it reaffirmed its precedent requiring immigration judges to, quote, consider the cumulative effect of the allegedly persecutory incidents, end quote. But under its deferential standard of review, agreed that the incidents alleged in this case were not sufficiently extreme. Even though the, quote, lack of a severe physical injury does not preclude Mr. Martinez's past persecution claim, end quote, the events here just didn't rise to the kind of, quote, severe mistreatment, end quote, required in the 11th Circuit. But the court then found that the IJ and the BIA failed to give, quote, reasoned consideration, end quote, to Mr. Martinez's claim that there is a pattern or practice of persecution against the group dissident journalists in Cuba. Essentially, the IJ and the BIA expressly recognized that Cuba persecuted journalists, 
but they didn't explain really why Mr. Martinez doesn't fit that category. So the 11th sent it back. Congratulations to Derek Steikleather and Rachel Nagar of the Clinic BIA Pro Bono Project. Couple more things. Judge Martin concurred in part and dissented in part. She, like me, doesn't quite understand why the majority picked apart and isolated Mr. Martinez's individual incidents of persecution, when under the law that the majority cited, the incidents must be considered cumulatively. Quote, it's like studying each tree, but ignoring the forest, end quote. Well put. Check out Judge Martin's concurrence for some helpful past persecution case law and analysis. And here's an interesting quote from the majority. In affirming the no past persecution finding, the 11th Circuit stated that, quote, employment discrimination, which stops short of depriving an individual of a means of earning a living, does not constitute persecution, end quote. Fair enough. But it's good to know that the 11th Circuit will consider economic persecution claims and that this is the standard. And that is Cabrera Martinez, the U.S. Attorney General. Next up, Oriana Racinos v. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on April 5, 2021. This case is about family-based particular social groups and nexus. Miss Oriana Racinos and her minor son fled El Salvador after MS-13 members twice tried to get her son to sell drugs for the gang, threatened Miss Oriana Racinos over the phone to let him sell drugs, and then stood outside their home when he refused for 30 minutes, displaying their weapons. In the United States, the mother and son applied for asylum, with Miss Oriana Racinos applying as the principal and her son as a derivative on her claim, alleging a fear of persecution based on the particular social group, immediate family members, of her son. The immigration judge and the BIA denied, finding the particular social group cognizable, but holding that Miss Oriana Racinos didn't suffer persecution on account of that reason. The Tenth Circuit affirmed. It noted that the nexus requirement is not met if, quote, persecutors are simply pursuing their distinct objectives, and a victim's membership in the group is relevant only as a means to an end, end quote. The Tenth Circuit held that that is what happened here. Indeed, Miss Oriana Racinos was only called and threatened in an effort to have her son deal drugs for the gang. Accordingly, in considering its deferential standard of review, quote, the IJ could properly infer that the gang's ultimate motivation was to recruit the son, not to attack his family, end quote. The Tenth Circuit also held that, despite the fact that Miss Oriana Racinos didn't submit a brief to the BIA, it retained jurisdiction over the case and could consider her petition for review and appellate arguments. But Miss Oriana Racinos lost her case. Two more things. Here's a quote that I don't hate, 10th Circuit practitioners. Although probative, quote, the lack of persecution of other persons who share the protected ground does not conclusively establish that the persecution is not on account of the protected ground, end quote. Even if those other individuals are immediate family members in a family-based asylum case. See also WGAV Sessions out of the Seventh Circuit. Finally, and possibly a strategic call, 
and possibly the result of Miss Oriana Racinos not having an attorney at the time, who knows. But perhaps the family would have had better luck if both Miss Oriana Racinos and her son had both filed affirmative asylum applications. After all, the son was the target of most of the threats. Even though Miss Oriana Racinos would not have qualified as a derivative on her son's application, there's nothing I'm aware of precluding both of them filing as principals. And then Miss Oriana Racinos additionally listing her son as a derivative. Might have helped the son. And that is Oriana Racinos v. Garland. Before we get to the crimmigration part of the episode, we have Quiroa Mata v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on April 6, 2021. This is a short case about motions to reopen. Mr. Quiroa Mata was placed in removal proceedings, applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under 240AB, and was ordered removed. He appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, did not succeed, and was physically removed to Guatemala in 2008 but he re-entered unlawfully shortly thereafter. He was not discovered, and in 2019, he filed a motion to reopen with the BIA, alleging that his former attorney in 2008 committed ineffective assistance of counsel by failing to submit sufficient hardship documents that would have qualified him for cancellation of removal. The BIA denied the motion to reopen, and here the First Circuit affirmed. The First Circuit affirmed on timeliness grounds. In general, such motions must be filed within 90 days of the final order. That deadline can be equitably told, but only based on a showing that, quote, one, he has been pursuing his rights diligently, and two, some extraordinary circumstance stood in his way of filing by the deadline, end quote. Here, the First Circuit held that Mr. Quiroa Mata cannot show that he diligently pursued his rights. Even if the First Circuit assumes that the tolling deadline did not run while he was in Guatemala, Mr. Quiroamata couldn't show that he acted with diligence during the other 11 years after his final order when he was in the United States. In the First Circuit, the diligence period runs throughout the entire period, not just during the period after the non-citizen learns about the alleged ineffective assistance of counsel. Now apparently, the BIA also denied the motion based on a finding that the reinstatement provision of the INA that we talked about earlier in the show barred Mr. Kuroa Mata from filing his motion. But as Oil conceded, the reinstatement provision doesn't apply here because DHS never reinstated the prior order. But according to the First Circuit, that first reason for denying the motion is sufficient, so the error was apparently harmless. Final thing? It turns out that whether motions to reopen are subject to equitable tolling has actually yet to be decided in the First Circuit. But that the First Circuit keeps assuming, without deciding, that yes indeed, equitable tolling applies. Just a heads up. And that is Kuroa Mata v. Garland. On to the criminal cases. Next is Aspilair v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on April 6, 2021. This case is about aggravated felonies, antique firearms, and the realistic probability test. Mr. Aspilair is from Haiti and became an LPR in 2007. 
but he was convicted of a felony, and then in 2014 and 2015, he was arrested for more crimes. He was eventually convicted of possession of a weapon or ammunition by a felon in violation of Florida Statute Section 790.231A, and he was sentenced to 12 years of imprisonment. It appears that rather than have him serve that sentence, DHS just tried to remove him to Haiti, based on the argument that the conviction was an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43EII. That provision defines as an aggravated felony crimes that relate to firearms offenses. NIJ and the BIA eventually found him removable. Before the 11th Circuit, Mr. Aspillere argued that he's not removable and the conviction is not an aggravated felony that relates to a firearms offense, because the Florida Felon in Possession Statute does not match the federal definition of a firearms offense. That's because the categorical approach applies, and according to Mr. Aspillere, although both the federal government and Florida exclude possession of an antique firearm by a felon from their definition of what is a firearms offense, Florida's definition of what constitutes an antique firearm is narrower than the federal definition, i.e., Florida doesn't exclude as many antique firearms from its firearms offenses, as does the feds. Specifically, Florida would appear to criminalize possession by a felon of a black powder muzzle loader, I suppose like a Revolutionary War musket, while the feds do not. The feds exclude black powder muzzle loaders from their firearms offenses. If all of that is true, that would make the Florida crime broader than the federal offense, and therefore not a categorical match to a removable firearms offense. But the 11th Circuit held that Mr. Aspillere's view of the Florida statute is not correct. Among other reasons, the 11th held that in actuality, both the feds and Florida do not criminalize possession of an antique black powder muzzle loader. The two jurisdictions' antique firearms definitions just describe the weapon differently. The federal government defines as an antique firearm, and therefore excludes from prosecution, quote, any muzzle-loading rifle designed to use black powder or a black powder substitute, end quote. Florida, instead, defines as an antique firearm certain firearms based on the ignition system that the firearm uses and a black powder muzzle loader uses a, quote, matchlock, flintlock, percussion cap, or similarly early type of ignition system, which means under Florida law, they are excluded from prosecution. I'll have to take the 11th Circuit's word on this one here, folks. As the 11th Circuit recognizes, however, if technology develops in the future such that a black powder muzzle loader can be ignited in another way, the Florida statute might become overbroad, because a different type of ignition of a black powder muzzleloader would then make it not an antique under Florida law. I wait this 19th century technological advancement with bated breath. Having determined that the Florida statutory language was not broader than the federal firearms definition, the 11th Circuit also held that Mr. Aspillere could not satisfy the realistic probability test and show that in actuality, Florida does prosecute antique firearms that the feds exclude. Summarized, the 11th Circuit held that the first Florida case that Mr. Aspillere cited in support of his position is irrelevant because it was a burglary case rather than a felon in possession of a firearm case. 
and that the second case from the Florida Supreme Court, which quite frankly may have won the day for Mr. Espelaire, is no longer good law. So, unfortunate result for Mr. Espelaire, but big decision for the realistic probability test in the 11th Circuit. In this case, the 11th Circuit, written by Chief Judge William Pryor, no less, expressly quotes Ramos v. U.S. Attorney General for the proposition that, quote, a petitioner may demonstrate that statutory language itself, rather than the application of legal imagination to that language, creates a realistic probability that a state would apply the statute to conduct beyond the reach of a federal statute, end quote. Whether that's actually the realistic probability test, or rather just simple statutory categorical approach interpretation, is kind of besides the point. This recognition that a non-citizen need not find an actual case when the statute's text is facially overbroad aligns with the analysis in the majority of circuits and would appear to contradict not only the BIA's analysis in matter of Guadarrama, but the BIA's interpretation of whether Ramos remains good law in the 11th Circuit. Now I'll admit, the 11th Circuit kinda left the door open, ever so slightly, to one day overrule Ramos based on counter-arguments that rely upon dicta from Moncrief. But the chief judge then expressly states that even if revisited in the future, quote, we have doubts that requiring exemplar prosecutions in cases involving obviously overbroad language makes sense, end quote. You heard it from this podcaster first and like 15 times now. The 11th Circuit does not apply the realistic probability test in the manner that the BIA said it did in matter of Guadarrama. And that is Aspilaire, the U.S. Attorney General. Next, we have Diaz Flores v. Garland, published by the 9th Circuit on April 6, 2021. This case is all about CIMTs. Mr. Diaz Flores entered the United States unlawfully at 21 years old and grew up in this country. Twenty years later, he was detained on misdemeanor charges. But during that detention, it was discovered that he had been previously convicted of first-degree burglary in Oregon, twice, in violation of Oregon Revised Statute Section 164.225. In removal proceedings, Mr. Diaz Flores conceded that he was removable for entering the country without inspection or admission and applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal, and in the alternative, asylum and related relief. The IJ, however, determined that Mr. Diaz-Flores' burglary convictions were CIMTs, therefore making him ineligible for non-LPR cancellation under the statute. The IJ and the BIA also denied his application for asylum and related relief. In this decision, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the board's CIMT ruling. It started off by noting that because the term CIMT is so difficult to define, the Ninth Circuit, like the BIA, will now, quote, generally compare the state offense to crimes that have been previously found to involve moral turpitude, end quote. Now, burglary is complicated. Just ask Mr. DeMaia and Mr. Sessions. The Ninth Circuit has previously generally held that a burglary crime is a CIMT if the burglary is of a residential dwelling and that the intent of the burglary is itself a CIMT, such as a fraud or a theft or a violent crime. So, two-part inquiry. 
Lots of qualifiers, and most of the cases the Ninth Circuit has relied upon are California statutes rather than Oregon burglary statutes. But there's your general principle. Or at least it used to be. More on that later. With Oregon burglary, the statute is broader than the definition of a CIMT, because it allows for conviction for entering many types of buildings, not just residential dwellings, and criminalizes circumstances where the defendant has the intent to commit any crime, not just a morally turpitudinous crime. For example, under Oregon law, quote, a vandal may use an oxygen lance to break into an aircraft to graffiti the inside of the airplane, end quote not a CIMT. Good to know. So the Oregon burglary statute is broader than the federal definition of a CIMT, like the California burglary statute. The only way it can be a CIMT, then, is if it's divisible into separate crimes, and Mr. Diaz-Flores was convicted of a morally turpitudinous portion. The Ninth Circuit held that the statute is divisible between residential burglary and other structures, which is the relevant CIMT inquiry. This is due in large part to the fact that the Oregon State Court cases, quote, treat burglary of a dwelling as a distinct crime, for which dwelling is an element that must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. And so, applying the modified categorical approach and looking to the indictment and criminal judgment in this case, the Ninth Circuit ascertained that Mr. Diaz-Flores was convicted of burglarizing a dwelling, indicating that his conviction is a CIMT. Under long-standing Ninth Circuit precedent, the question would then be, what did Mr. Diaz-Flores precisely intend to do once he burglarized the dwelling? Did he have the intent to commit a morally turpitudinous crime, or was he going to just graffiti the house? But in 2017, the BIA issued matter of JGDF, which held that it doesn't really matter what the defendant intended to do when he burglarized. To be a CIMT, a burglary must simply be of, quote, a regularly or intermittently occupied dwelling, end quote. No further analysis of intent is required. And in this decision, the Ninth Circuit deferred to that new definition of a burglary-based CIMT. It did so because such convictions, quote, will necessarily involve an intrusion onto the justifiable expectation of privacy and personal security that people have in the places where they retreat at night for lodging, end quote. Relying on Supreme Court precedent, quote, a victim's presence renders burglary particularly worthy of moral condemnation, end quote. This, according to the Ninth Circuit and BIA, is vile, base, and depraved, such that it is morally turpitudinous. Oregon residential burglary categorically criminalizes such conduct. Namely, it requires that the dwelling be, quote, one that regularly or intermittently is occupied by a person lodging therein at night, end quote. So it's a CIMT. And this aligns with the decision out of at least the Fourth Circuit. In an unpublished decision, the Ninth Circuit panel denied the asylum and Convention Against Torture challenge as well. Just a bit more on divisibility and CIMTs. First, the Ninth Circuit distinguishes its decision here from the one it made in the United States v. Cisneros, wherein, in the sentence enhancement context, the Ninth Circuit held that this same Oregon statute was not divisible as to the type of building burglarized. It's just divisible as to whether the building is a dwelling or not, 
Apparently, the very specific type of building matters in the sentence enhancement context, but it doesn't matter for CIMTs. Again, all that matters is whether it's a dwelling. Fair enough, and it doesn't help Mr. Diaz-Flores, but it's a good reminder that to get to the modified categorical approach and review the Taylor Shepard documents, a statute must be relevantly divisible on the specific removability question at issue. Just because a criminal statute is divisible on some issues doesn't mean that the courts can look at everything. When an overbroad statute is not divisible on the specific issue that makes it overbroad, the modified categorical approach shouldn't apply. Finally, in a footnote, the panel, like Judge Burzon last week, noted that the CIMT definition has become, quote, so unwieldy, end quote, and noted, quote, the chorus of voices calling for renewed consideration as to whether the phrase crime involving moral turpitude is unconstitutionally vague, end quote. But like Judge Burzon, the panel found itself foreclosed from taking up the issue by prior precedent. Looks like the Supreme Court hasn't taken up the issue since 1951, when homosexuality and interracial romances were deemed morally turpitudinous in many quarters of America. Time for a review? And that is Diaz Flores v. Garland. To paraphrase Donna Summer, it's my last case. Last case for romance, tonight. Ahmed v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on April 8, 2021. This case is about controlled substance offenses and asylum. As with so many Eighth Circuit decisions, it seems, Mr. Ahmed is from Somalia. He's part of the minority Islamic sect known as Sufism, and he fled Somalia in 2000. It appears he probably entered the U.S. as a refugee with his family and became a lawful permanent resident. But Mr. Ahmed was thrice convicted of possession of the substance cot, criminalized under Minnesota Statute Section 152.025, Subdivision 2.1. Now, as I understand it, cot is like a chewable stimulant consumed widely in countries such as Somalia and Yemen. But it's illegal in most, if not all, U.S. states. And so DHS initiated removal proceedings, charging Mr. Ahmed under INA Section 237A2BI as a non-citizen who's been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance. And IJ first held that the criminal statute did not make Mr. Ahmed removable, but the BIA reversed the IJ on appeal. Then on remand, the IJ granted Mr. Ahmed asylum, and the BIA reversed again on appeal. The BIA seems to really have it out for Mr. Ahmed. Mr. Ahmed brought it all to the Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit held that Mr. Ahmed is indeed removable. Even though the Minnesota statute is broader than the federal definition of a controlled substance because it criminalizes substance that the feds don't, the Eighth Circuit held last year in Rendon v. Barr that the exact Minnesota statute at issue here is divisible as to the controlled substance possessed because a jury must decide which controlled substance an individual possessed for a prosecutor to obtain a conviction. That makes the modified categorical approach applicable, and having applied the approach and reviewed the guilty plea as that approach allows, both the BIA and the Eighth Circuit concluded that Mr. Ahmed possessed cot. While cot didn't used to be on the federal controlled substance list, it is now. Kinda. The federal list criminalizes possession of the chemical compositions of cot, even if it might not mention the word cot, and the Eighth Circuit has held 
that that is enough for there to be a match to the Minnesota statute. And so, the conviction for possessing Kat makes Mr. Ahmed removable. Turning then to asylum, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial. Now, the BIA is barred by regulation from making findings of fact, so if it did, that constitutes reversible error. And here, the BIA overturned the IJ's finding that the particular social group defined as Somali individuals suffering from mental health illnesses was incorrect because the group is not socially distinct in Somalia. Under BIA precedent, that necessarily requires an analysis of factual country conditions in Somalia. And therefore, there's a good argument that in reversing the immigration judge, the BIA fact-found. But the ultimate, quote, cognizability of a proposed social group presents a question of law, end quote. Technically, I think it's a mixed question of law and fact, which is now conclusively treated as a question of law. See matter of ACCA. Very smart, Attorney General Barr. And so framed, the BIA's finding that the group is not socially distinct was a question of law rather than a question of fact that does not necessarily implicate impermissible fact-finding on the part of the BIA. At least whereas here the BIA simply found that Mr. Ahmed failed to meet his burden on the record evidence. The BIA also did not err, and did not commit impermissible fact-finding, in holding that the record did not show that the Somali government was unable or unwilling to protect Mr. Ahmed and Sufi individuals like him from al-Shabaab. The BIA, quote, pointed out, for example, that the immigration judge had ignored evidence that Somali officials had experienced some success in curbing al-Shabaab, leaving the group with control over less than 20% of the country, end quote. So Mr. Ahmed did not succeed. Just a few observations. Compare this case to the Ninth Circuit's decision in Ali Aden v. Wilkinson, discussed on episode 45 of the podcast, wherein I noted at the time that the decision so strongly supported Somali Sufi asylum claims and fears of al-Shabaab that I said that, quote, this decision and the country condition evidence relied upon therein arguably stands for the proposition that persecution from al-Shabaab in 2016 against Sufi individuals rises to the level of past persecution and may support a pattern and practice claim, end quote. Oh, how the decisions can diverge depending on the circuit and depending on the panel. And yes, I just quoted myself for the first time on the podcast. Finally, here, the Eighth Circuit deemed probative the BIA's finding that there aren't even, quote, words in the Somali language for post-traumatic stress disorder, end quote, which is the mental health disorder that Mr. Ahmed suffered from. I like this analysis, but of course flip it for your client. Find a word in the society's native language for the particular social group that you're proposing. It constitutes strong evidence of social distinction. And here's a case to cite. And that is Ahmed v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.